identity, or maybe you're close to someone who identifies as gay or transgender, there are two fundamental challenging questions that have been brought to the forefront through LGBTQ issues. First, there's a question of sex, right? What is it? Like, what are you attracted to? Is, is sex something that should be regulated by anyone besides ourselves? And the second question is identity. Who am I? Who do I want to be? Are we fundamentally self-determined? Or are we determined by someone or something other than ourselves? So those are huge issues that I just laid out there. And at the bottom of those issues is who gets to answer those questions? Is it God or myself? And so it requires us to deal with it as Christians, right? If, if God's word and the gospel is really sufficient and powerful and everything we claim it is, then we need to know how to respond and interact with our culture according to God's truth. It's essential that we preach Christ in our actions and words regarding what the gospel says to issues of our day. But the church has often lost sight of this idea, right? And by the church, I mean the church in general, not just Lighthouse, right? In fact, I would say that the default position for most Christians and most churches in this area is ignorance or silence or apathy about these topics. And so sometimes we remain silent about this area because we're afraid of speaking, right? We don't know what to say. Sometimes we assume things will just change on their own, right? And we don't have to be part of it. Sometimes we think, if I just don't think about this issue, I can go through my Christian life, love God, love others, and can just kind of sidestep it, avoid the issue. It won't affect me. But none of those responses are sufficient because none of them bring God's love to people in need. This is real life. Sin is real, suffering is real, and the gospel is not powerless you know, our church, Lighthouse, received an email a few years back that simply said this, I'm gay and I'm looking for a church to get closer to God. Will me being gay close your doors to me? Someone emailed that to our church office. Please realize that this is the assumption of so many in the LGBTQ community. So if you're struggling with issues of sexuality or gender this evening, I want you to know that the Bible does not single you out as being weird to God. I want to affirm that God made you and that your sexuality is a gift he has given to you. I also want to affirm that Jesus Christ loves you. He died for you. And he provides the hope of intimacy and reconciliation with the God of the universe that can satisfy you and give you peace and joy in a way that nothing in this world can. A church that wants to reflect the heart of God will never close their doors to you because of who our God is. And a church that trusts what God has said will also never stop speaking of how Christ is our life and how finding our identity in the things of this world, no matter what they are, will never be best. You see, the church should be the one place where everything can be talked about because it's the one place where everything can be forgiven, washed clean, redeemed. It should be the place where hope is found, faith is fueled. But in order for that to happen, we need to start with God, right? Because our goal in all of life, including our look into sexuality and identity, isn't to make sure we have all the answers we would like, or to make sure that people understand us well, it's for us to worship and love God and, and glorify him even in how we think about a topic. So this evening, we wanna to come to a God-glorifying understanding of sexuality and identity. 
I believe a God-glorifying understanding involves many ideas, but I think it can be boiled down to four important effects. And that's what you have in your handout. A God-glorifying understanding of sexuality should help us, one, see the goodness of God in the gift of sexuality, two, understand the corruption of this gift in our hearts, three, magnifying Christ and his gospel, and four, demonstrate God's love for our neighbors. So we're going to start with the goodness of God and the gift of sexuality. And before I do that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this night that we could sing in Christ alone, my hope is found. Lord, I pray that those words that we proclaimed tonight would ring true in our hearts and in our lives and in our relationships in the way we love. Lord, our hearts tell us to place our hopes in anything but you, in anything. And Lord, our, our, even our sexuality can become a place of hope in expressing it in a certain way or in giving in to certain desires. But Lord, I pray that you alone would be our hope, that you, we would remember the treasures of the gospel, we would remember our great salvation, we would remember the greatness of your love, and we would return to you once again. Lord, I, you know every heart in this room. You are the searcher of hearts. You know us better than we know ourselves. So I pray that you would just prepare us, humble us, excite us for what you will say to us from your word tonight. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so number one is seeing the goodness of God in the gift of sexuality. What does God and the Bible tell us about the gift of sexuality? All right, when God talks with us about his gifts, he doesn't take us to commands, but to his heart. Like when we consider, consider how to use God's gifts, rather than looking at the Bible and saying, okay, what does God want me to do with this gift, right? Does he forbid this use of it? Does he allow this use of it? A bigger question is, um, does the way I want to use this allow me to fulfill his purpose for loving, right? In scripture, every gift God gives is, is meant to tell a story of his love for us so that we can take that gift and tell that story of love and kind of continue it on for others. In every gift, he reveals his love and he equips us to love others, right? So what does that look like in the gift of sexuality? By making us sexual beings, God created us with the capacity to express his humble love, either through selflessly honoring a spouse in marriage or through self-control as a single, right? In, in in his word, God has shown us how sex is given to singles for self-denial in 1 Thessalonians 4 and is given to marriage, in marriage for serving others, 1 Corinthians 7. So does it make sense? Sex is never just about me, like how I can scratch some itch. It's a means to love others through broad spectrum self-control as a single, right? So I can look at my friends and not dishonor them in the way I think about them and how I value them, or through humble sacrificial serving in marriage. All other uses of that gift go against God's design and therefore fall short of his love. Any other use of that gift does not seek another person's highest good, which is to point them to Christ. The book of the Bible most clearly dedicated to this gift, the gift of sexuality, is Song of Solomon. 
right? I'm not going to preach through the whole book of Song of Solomon tonight, so don't worry about that. But uh, it's important for us to kind of have an overview. I think that also it's just like God. When explaining his gift of sexuality and love, he doesn't give us um, a manual or a kind of awkward encyclopedia. He literally writes a love song. That's how God's going to explain this gift to us. He calls it Song of Solomon. And it is a song of selfless honoring of somebody else. It is about fiercely faithful love between one man and one woman. And it shows delight and passion and commitment and selflessness. And as you read Song of Solomon, you see that for the couple, 100% of the dialogue is focused on the other person. They give themselves wholeheartedly to themselves, to each other. And then they have a community around them that sings about their love and encourages them to continue loving each other. I think this is a beautiful thing, right? Like that's exactly what love is supposed to be. Like I am pursuing this other person's interests above my own. I count them as more significant than myself. And I have a community of people who love me who tell me that this is a good thing. Then at three specific points, uh, the, the, the woman in the story, it's the story between like this, this woman and her kind of shepherd uh, boy she's in love with and they are married. At three specific points, the woman turns and addresses the audience with this same phrase, do not stir up or awaken love until it's time. It says that in Song of Solomon 2, 7, 3, 5, Eight, four. In fact, the warning plays such a key role in the book that most scholars organize the whole book around those three warnings from the shepherdess, from the woman. The song pulls us into the joys of being in love. It gives us love to learn from and to aspire to, but then it makes us promise not to awaken sexual love unless we are ready to use it to honor a spouse. Marriage between a man and a woman is the only right time and place to express sexual love, right? We don't stir it up in other relationships. We don't set our minds or our hearts on it in other relationships until we're ready to truly honor someone else as God has designed for us to. The woman in Song of Solomon asks her community to take an oath, right? Why? Why does she say this three times and com commands us to promise not to stir it up? She says, listen to how she describes sexual love. She says, it's as strong as death, as fierce as the grave. It flashes with fire. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. And it cannot be purchased with money. It's too powerful, right? Once you awaken it, once you light it, it's like a forest fire. It's like the king of the jungle when it comes to influencing your emotions, right? This is the gift of sex and sexuality. It is from God. It is for your good. It is good. But God wants us to share it only as an extension of his love that honors others, that creates life, and that seeks someone else's highest good. All other uses of that gift are harmful. Homosexuality, masturbation, adultery, premarital sex are just a few examples of sexual sin described in scripture that exists as a product of us as a whole, not just individually, elevating sex above God. Transgenderism would be another example of that. It's a product of elevating gender above God and finding identity in the gender we perceive to be internally 
rather than in who God says we are. All dishonoring of our bodies, Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 6, is a form of idolatry against God. Like idolatry, taking that gift from God and separating it from God, repurposing it to our own desires. I like how Jackie Hill Perry said it in her book, Gay Girl, Good God. And she, if you haven't listened to like some of the spoken word from Jackie Hill Perry or read her books or this, even the, the chapter on the gospel, it's just incredible the way she writes. But this is what she said. My hands, my head, face, legs, hips, hormones, private parts, voice, feet, fingers, feelings were all made by him and for him. Apparently, this body was never mine to begin with. It was given to me from somebody for somebody, somebody who'd made it for glory and not shame. All right, second thing here, understanding the corruption of his gift in our hearts, of this gift in our hearts. So first we see the goodness of God in his gift of sexuality. Second, understanding how it gets corrupted. So what happens in our hearts that causes us to misuse this good gift? God's gifts are corrupted when we disconnect them from the giver. That's how it works. It's called idolatry. When we no longer use them to worship God and to love others and instead use them for our own selfish desires. Now we have this gift, right? But you have to figure out a new purpose for it, right? And in our culture, the lie is that you get to decide the purpose of this gift in your own life. You are, it stops with you. You can decide whatever you want. In understanding homosexuality or bisexuality or transgenderism or any type of queerness, we must see how this struggle involves taking a specific gift from God and trying to explain it without him, trying to use it apart from the giver and it putting us in the place of the creator. Queer writer and artist, Michael Feinstein, writes to queer teens, and this is what he said, and know this, that you are truly beautiful from the depths of your being, because loving yourself is the greatest gift you can experience. What others perceive and say is an illusion as far as your true self is concerned. Let me read that last part again. What others perceive and say is an illusion as far as your true self is concerned. Did you notice what he's telling us? He's saying your desire, the desires within you is your true self. Like that's your identity. So in our world today, queerness is about so much more than sex. It's about identity. Right? The lie that goes after our gospel identity that defines us through Christ, this is the lie. The apostle says that in Christ, we live and move and have our being. So your identity is not gay and bi and straight. Your identity is Jesus Christ alone. But we replaced in Christ, we live and move our, have our being, with in our desires, we live and move and have our being. Like that's how I understand myself. But if there's no creator, savior, and Lord, then there's no intentionality behind you as a human being. Right? You, yes, you are free to chart your own course and make whatever decisions you seem fit. If that means conforming and altering your body to be what you feel you are, then go for it. In other words, if there is no creator, now you get to be the creator because there's no underlying morality or intent for who you are. You are a bag of chemicals. So if you wanna change the contents of the bag, if you wanna change the shape of the bag, 
feel free. Right? There is no intent. You are on your own. You get to own this bag. It's your property, and you should get to decide what to do with it. Now, that can feel incredibly liberating. And yes, yet if I'm my own creator, then there becomes this immense pressure, right? Because not only do I need to define my identity, but I have to define everything else. I have to define love, define relationships, define morality, define purpose, define happiness, define absolutely everything in my life apart from God's design. This step of creating your own identity is to deny that there is any truth at all, and therefore you just join an ocean of people in our postmodern culture, inventing and reinventing themselves as they wander to find truth in their feelings that works for them in the shifting sands of culture, trying to define what life is about. All because the gift has been separated from the giver. But in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The hope in the gospel for all of us who are by nature sinners is that who we are can change through faith in Jesus Christ. Our sexual desires don't have to define who we are. The Bible doesn't promise the removal or eradication of our desires, but it tells us our identity can and will be changed. And this is amazing because if you understand the gospel, it's a message about reconciliation and judgment and righteousness and heaven and hell, but also identity, right? God intends for us to become, on account of his work, his children, his saints, his people, regardless of what our identities once were. Right, but the culture is never going to let this lie go, right? They're never going to stop that lie. So I want to spend a little bit of time on the kinds of questions that will keep the pressure on you and persistently tempt you toward corrupting the good gift of our sexuality. First, what makes someone gay, right? Is it a choice, right? Sinful desire does not begin with a choice. Lady Gaga was right, right? In her song, Born This Way, she says, no matter gay, straight, or bi, I was born to survive. Baby, I was born this way, right? But sadly, she presents this truth as something good, as if by simply accepting that we were born with sinful desires prepackaged in our hearts, we'll find peace. The doctrine of total depravity says that every person is born with the potential to sin in every possible way. Right? We have every sin stored up in our hearts, so thinking this way helps us see that anyone can be a born liar, born murderer, born homosexual, born thief, born adulterer, born gossip, etc. Although we could potentially struggle with every sin in existence, God's grace holds back sin so that not everyone lives like an Osama bin Hitler life. Right? Each person has their own set of struggles. We each have our own struggles, our own life-dominating sins. We're all sexually broken in different ways. But just because one person's temptation is different from another's, it doesn't make any difference before God. I think this is probably the most misunderstood aspect of homosexuality by those who call themselves Christians today. Most churches will either change their Bible to say that the homosexual lifestyle is acceptable, or they will say that the homosexual orientation is simply a choice. However, it is crucial for us to understand that although every sinful action comes from conscious choice, the sinful desires behind the action were not chosen, right? You see that in Romans 3. 
We are all born desiring sin in our hearts. No one had to teach us to desire sin. And no amount of spiritual growth will ever completely erase all sinful desires from our hearts in this life. All right, can you change being gay? Is the next question. Well, our God is a potter and we are clay. All are constantly changing, but there is no promise of the presence of sinful desires ever going away in this life, right? They are part of our natural flesh. But sinful desire does get quieter as our worship for God gets louder. And the love of God guides my relationships, my friendships. As that happens, they're, they're freed from the greed of sexual lust so that I can love. All right, question three, how do I know if I'm gay or not? I think this is a question that's looking for an identity, right? The reality is that we have the seed of this struggle built into all of our hearts. I should never pridefully look at someone's sin and say, I'd never do that. I'm so glad it's not me, right? Just because you're not currently sinning in this way or desiring to sin in this way doesn't mean the potential isn't there. But we don't need to ask this question at all because while the world looks for the real me by looking at desires, we find the real me by looking to Christ. Number four, why can't you accept me for who I am? Well, the world calls same-sex attraction and gender identity a fundamental part of who they are. And if you don't love that part of them, then you don't love them. So how do you respond? Well, the way we love them is by helping them see that they were made by a loving God, made to enjoy a loving God. And that self-denial is always part of how we come to God. We take up our cross to follow him. And that we are called to self-denial in lots of different ways when it comes to living out the gospel. Question five, why put a limit on love? Well, we're not limiting love, right? We're helping relationships function according to God's design. Love also is not about someone just getting the object of their desire. It's about seeking the other person's highest good. And God, God gets to define what that is. Number six, I'm so uncomfortable with my body and I want to change it to match the gender I feel. Are you telling me that God wants me to be uncomfortable my whole life? Isn't this just a medical problem with a medical solution? Well, ever since the fall, men and women have experienced discomfort with their bodies. I think especially during teenage years. So immediately after the fall, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, excuse sorry, immediately after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit that God told them not to eat, they felt uncomfortable with their nakedness and they hid. Sam Albury writes this. He says, what's true of creation in general is true of our bodies also. They, they are part of the physical order that has been subjected to this frustration, right? That's the fault. We see this frustration in a variety of ways. Some face unremitting health issues, Others contend with a whole range of body image struggles. Still more experience body dysphoria, feeling as though they're trapped in the wrong kind of body. The fact is virtually no one has an entirely straightforward relationship with their own body. It's a way of life in this world. And while it's true that anyone can see this problem, Christians can uniquely account for it. Number seven, are you telling me to live without sex? Isn't that denying an essential part of who I am and how I was created? You are a sexual being. And like all sexual beings, that sex is expressed most beautifully through sacrificial self-denial, right? Also, that's, this is the life our Lord lived. Like Jesus was a sexual being. You guys know that? He's fully God, fully man. 
He was like us. He was a sexual being who expressed it through self-denial, right? He used the broad spectrum of self-control. His, sex, his sexuality wasn't a waste. This is one of the many ways Christ denied himself to love. Christ lived this way. And if this is the life you must live because of a struggle, Christ is saying your life is not less of a life because of it, right? Because the life of our Lord was not less of a life. And so the question must be asked, that the million dollar question is this, if this is something that goes against God's original design for human beings, that's sinful, that separates us from God, then why does God allow it? Why does God allow people to kind of naturally become this way? Why does God allow people to be born with sexual brokenness or gender confusion? Why does he let you and me become, apart from conscious choice, sexually broken? Well, I believe every bit of sin and brokenness in this world is meant to point us to Jesus Christ and his gospel, to show the power of our redeeming God. The Bible isn't about homosexuality. It's about the redemption of humanity in Christ for the glory of God. So the better question to ask is, how is Jesus Christ and his gospel seen as great through the trials of sexual brokenness and gender confusion? In John chapter 9, verse 3, the Bible tells us of another example of a man who was born with an unnatural outcome of the fall. He was born blind. Let me read just verses 1 through 3 of John 9. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So see, the the disciples were thinking on one level, this man is, is broken because somebody in his life was a sinner. And Jesus is thinking on another level, this man is broken so that God might be glorified and praised through him. Now today, we don't at all think that there's a connection between blindness and sinfulness, but in those days, that's what everybody believed. They thought he was born with brokenness because he or his parents were terrible sinners. But Jesus corrects that thinking. And through this simple story, we see how the biblical understanding of sexual brokenness can make sense. And it can only make sense in light of the gospel and what God is doing in this world through people. We need to comprehend how this fallen world is meant to bring glory to God through redemption in Christ. And that's where we're going to go next, magnifying Christ and his gospel. How can Jesus's gospel be seen as great in those who struggle with queer desires? First, the gospel grants forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Let me read this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adult idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. No matter what a person has done, they are not too far from the gospel or from God. This is pretty much the base level understanding of how the sins we struggle with in this world can bring glory and honor to God. Second, the gospel provides us with the only way to intimacy with God. Bishop Gene Robinson, who is openly gay, writing about his experience, said this. He said, 
Growing up in a fundamentalist congregation, I heard and believed that God found me unworthy of his love, even unworthy of the same respect accorded to other human beings. God loves sinners, but not because we're worthy of his love. That's why the gospel is so important. God loves us while we were still sinners. And that demonstrates his love for us, right? Romans 5, 8 said, right? God demonstrates his love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there's this kind of weird reversed gospel out there that, that seems to teach that while we were precious diamonds, God looked down from heaven and just saw how great we were and paid the necessary cost to correspond with our intrinsic value. I think that's, that's the heresy, right? That's the opposite of the gospel. What makes his love so amazing is that we were running from him in rebellion, fighting his kingdom, and he saved us in our sin. We must love those of us in sexual brokenness and affirm that God loves the sexually broken and that the intimacy with God found in the gospel is greater than any intimacies a person can find in this world. We must also remember that the intimacy with God is worth any sacrifice, right? It shows how valuable he is. Next, the gospel connects us to God's family. The essential means of fellowship and closeness that the New Testament portrays for us with other people is the church, not the nuclear family. This doesn't mean that like your mom and dad or brother and sister are not important, but it does mean that for us to live a holy life, abstaining from whatever strand of immorality happens to haunt your life the most, you're going to need the church. You're going to need this family. If we don't see this, our churches will fail those struggling with brokenness in their understanding of sex and gender. You know, the LGBTQ community is appealing to those who identify as gay because it promises safe harbor. They can finally feel safe and loved. And if the church wants to be a safe harbor and a place of healing for those who struggle, then we have to do even better. We have to be a community that's even safer, that loves better, that cares more than the LGBTQ community. But to be that community, we must stop lying about what we need and what we fear and where we fail and how we sin. We need to be a hospital for sinners that honors others as they share their struggle. The only man who ever lived with perfect love toward those around him was single, right? Jesus Christ. In Mark 3, 33 through 35, uh, he says this about his family. Who are my mother and brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And there's so many other passages in the New Testament. This is the main way that the New Testament articulates the church, that we are a family of brothers and sisters. In Mark 10, 29 through 31, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. 
for people to be part of our church family, does it feel like they are receiving a community a hundred times better than the community they had? If we don't love better than the world, than the communities around the sexually broken in the world, then we're making Jesus in some ways a liar here. We have to be a hundred times better of a family in loving, in our patience, in our honoring. And we're gonna get more into that in a minute. We must do better. The, promise, the gospel promises a reward for faith-filled endurance. In 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, Paul writes, I have fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Understand that what makes running this race hard is different for each of us. There are different obstacles that each of you have. Homosexuality as an orientation is not in and of itself sinful. Transgenderism as a feeling of confusion or not being like others is not in and of itself sinful. They're wrong, but they're not sinful. Many people struggle with feelings of being continually displeasing to the Lord because of what they are feeling. But temptation towards sin does not make a person displeasing to God. I mean, if that were a case, then temptation would automatically equal sin. But we can have desire, temptation, and not sin, right? If we don't indulge in and gratify the desires of the flesh. I mean, some people would say that sinful desires are the same as sin. And I want to just clarify that idea. If you remember last week when our study of, of sexuality, Matthew 5 says that sinning in our hearts is the same as sinning outside, but it does not say that desire is the same as sin. In fact, I would say there is no such thing as temptation without desire. I mean, just consider James chapter one. James provides a framework for thinking about our sin struggles. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This is how John Piper describes it. It would be right to say that same-sex desires are sinful in the sense that they are disordered by sin and exist contrary to God's revealed will. But to be caused by sin and rooted in sin does not make sinful desire equal to sinning. Sinning is what happens when rebellion against God expresses itself through our disorders. So the fact, in fact, a person who is struggling in this area, but who submits themselves to the Lord, who trusts that greater joy is found in intimacy with him, obedience in him, dependence on him, they are pleasing to God. And this is the danger with so-called treatments like conversion therapy that cure you of temptation. Right? The idea of a cure can make it seem like the goal is freedom from temptation rather than learning to flee temptation and resist sin in a way that flows from the love of Christ. In fact, outer temptations always beset us and the inner temptations will never completely disappear for most people. For this reason, the goal is not being free from temptation. It's in knowing what to do when temptation appears and taking action. Let me put it another way. Struggle is not a bad thing. Instead, struggle is the glorious work of God as he redeems and sanctifies fallen hearts. 
Most people take a negative view of struggle, right? Because it's painful, exhausting, and they know they should not love the sins that they're tempted to love. Struggle, however, is God's ordained way of working righteousness into our lives, transforming us into people who radically own it when we say no to temptation. Struggle itself is only possible because of the reviving work of the Spirit. So we need a vision for struggling well. To struggle against evil is a good thing. This may sound offensive, but if we are really to trust God's word here and his gospel, we need to think of sexual brokenness as suffering. It is a result of brokenness in this world, but it's something God allows and uses to make us more fully who we are meant to be. Finally here, under magnifying Christ, the gospel reminds us that Jesus is better. If we are to understand homosexuality or any other queerness in a way that glorifies Christ, we need to remember that Jesus is better. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, there's this enchantress called the Green Lady who uses magic to erase Aslan and Narnia, which are metaphors for Christ and his kingdom, from the children's minds. So this lady, green lady, tosses green powder on the fire in the fireplace and the room fills with this kind of sweet and drowsy aroma. And she starts playing on her mandolin and begins telling the children that all the truth they believed about Aslan and Narnia was just a dream. And she keeps talking until the children think that the only reality that exists and matters is what they currently see in her small room a lamp, a fireplace, and a chair. She tells them as she's singing and playing her mandolin, there is no Narnia, there is no overworld, there is no sky, no sun, no Aslan, and now to bed all and let us begin a wiser life tomorrow. And that's almost the end of the story. They only wake up and come to their senses because their friend, Puddle Glum, sticks his foot in the fire and wakes up from the pain. And when he wakes up from his stupor, Puddle Glum declares that he would rather die than be in her so-called real world that has erased all of Narnia and Aslan. And he makes the point that a short life is a small loss if there's no Aslan. Life is drained of all meaning when we erase God from his universe. The problem with the human heart is not what we don't know, but what we will not know what we refuse to accept as real and true, right? If our great enemy was just ignorance, then salvation would come from information. But Paul in Romans 1 says that the problem isn't access to information. The problem is what we are hardwired to do with that information, to do with truth. We suppress it. So our great enemy is ourselves. Like we are the green lady in our story, erasing God, erasing Aslan from his universe erasing him from our days, our world. And we must stand in each other's lives as friends and say, Jesus is better. Jesus understands what you think and feel and desire better than you do. He is not surprised by our sin or apathetic toward our suffering. In fact, he has shaken heaven and earth to come and act in salvation for you and to dwell with you all the days of your life. He loves you with an endless love. He only ever tells you the truth. He will never manipulate you. He is the one who sticks closer than a brother. He alone fully understands and accepts you. 
has the promise to carry you into eternity. He is available to you 24-7 with the power to help you with anything you face. This is your God. Please don't erase him. And this brings our final point up tonight. In light of the love we have received in the gospel, how might we demonstrate Christ's love in the face of sexual brokenness? How can we demonstrate Christ's love? First, seek to understand the struggle. Remember that this is not just another form of lust, right? This is brokenness. Most of those I've walked with in, like, in our counseling ministry, we've had maybe over 20 people from just our church who have struggled with same-sex attraction or some kind of sexual brokenness in, or queerness. Most of those I've walked with, lust has not been the main struggle, right? Those struggling with same-sex attraction. It's loneliness, it's frustration with wanting closer relationships and not being able to have them. It's fear of not changing. It's fear of never being kissed or held. It's anger over jokes that are made at church or on their sports teams. Right? Homosexuality is hard. It's suffering and it cannot be swept under the rug or ignored. We need to understand our gay friends and neighbors before we can accurately see how the Bible tells us about identity, about satisfaction, and about living water, giving the hope that they need. Romans 2.1 says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Remember that you're a sinner too. If the only people who ever question how God could love them are those who struggle with queer issues, then our understanding and presentation of the gospel is wrong. Second, be willing to talk about this openly, right? We need to be willing to talk about sin. We need stories of those who have struggled against sin well. We're gonna hear one in just a minute. After I get to the end of this, I'll read a story. We need people who are battling lust, battling homosexuality, gender confusion, to speak about the gospel and how the Holy Spirit is working in their lives especially for those growing up in the church, please don't assume it'll just go away. Our silence speaks, but realize that what we don't say can never substitute for what we should say. Honestly, if a friend has honored you by telling you about their struggle with their sexuality, please honor them by checking in on that. They didn't share that burden with you so you would have a list of facts to know about them but so that you would care for them, pray for them, show compassion to them, follow up with them, not in a judgmental way, but in a way that shows you're interested in their heart and curious about what God is doing. Next, offer the hope of the gospel. Remember to make this about what Jesus did and what he wants from every person. That will help guard against too much time spending on like defending marriage or other things like that. We want what is best, which is for people to know Christ. The end goal is always to hear the message and to respond in faith to the Savior that the message is about. The Christian gospel clearly says that the order is like this, repent, believe, and then slowly grow to become like Christ. We cannot get that order wrong. Next, practice contentment in any circumstance. We must give up the idea that to be content means I get to have everything my, in my circumstances of life the way I want it. That is not contentment. That's selfishness, and it won't satisfy you. 
And living that way as Christians preaches this crazy gospel that it's normal to get every little thing you could ever want. And that's how you find contentment. But I say, especially like in SoCal, like it is so normal for people to live this way. Like contentment is getting everything I want and I complain about anything that falls short of that. No, contentment in this life is a daily pursuit of Christ in the midst of everything that's so broken, broken relationships with people, brokenness in our bodies, brokenness in our emotions, finding Christ in that brokenness and holding on to him, that's our contentment. And that's all our contentment. We must build a Philippians 4, 11 through 13 culture in our church that says, like with Paul, not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. At our church, we need to teach and live this out in our own lives. All right, homosexuality or any other kind of sexual brokenness is not the only cross Jesus calls us to bear with contentment and joy. Next, welcome and love. Stop joking about these things. Don't simply try to avoid the issue. A simple question, are you trying to befriend and love people who are gay in your life with the gospel? Or are you trying to defeat them or harm them? I'm convinced that Jesus would go to gay people in love and truth. I mean, think about the story of someone you are witnessing to in the LGBTQ community. They might've been abused, hated, mistreated, demeaned their whole life for their desires. The LGBTQ community was the first home for them, the first place of safety, the first relationships of acceptance. So if we're asking them to leave that community, Are we ready to love them better? Are we ready to provide homes for them, to be like Christ, a Christ-like community that always moves toward them? Next, elevate friendship as a picture of the gospel. Christians are not designed to work alone any more than lungs can work without a heart. Therefore, friendship is not the consolation prize for those who fail to gain romantic love. Like marriage and parenthood, it is another way in which God manifests an aspect of his love for us. Paul calls his friend Onesimus his very heart. David's best friend in the Bible was Jonathan. And when Jonathan died, David laments him greatly, right? He says in 2 Samuel 1.26, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. That was David's lament for his friend, Jonathan. Now, sadly, some look at that verse and say, look, David was gay. And another extreme looks at this verse and says, well, David just didn't have any healthy relationships with women. And both of those responses are so sad and have such a small view of friendship because they assume that for love to be meaningful and deep, it has to be sexualized. And that's not true. Probably the real interpretation of 2 Samuel 1.26 is that David and Jonathan just actually knew how to demonstrate God's love to each other as friends. 
And in your life, whoever demonstrates the love of God to you the most, that will be the most powerful experience of love in your life. It might not even be your spouse that demonstrates God's love to you most powerfully. Jesus, who never married, invested deeply in friendship, said this, greater love has no one than this, than someone gets married. No, right? No, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Right? So we hear all the time, marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Christ's love for the church. And it, that's true. But friendship is not a lesser picture of the gospel. Right? Finally, last thing I wanted to say is before I go into this testimony, give and live the hope of a Christ-centered identity. We must be countercultural in refusing to find ourselves and our worth the way the world does. And this includes defining ourselves through the lens of our sexuality or marriage or gender. Marriage might be a big part of who we are, but it's not primary, not through the lens of romantic love. Gender might be a big part of who you are. It's not primary. Identity is not found in what people say about you, but in what God says you are in Christ. I want to thank you guys for your attention. I know I covered a lot of really sensitive material tonight. Hopefully you can see the beauty of the gospel going through it. And to end, to hopefully bring even maybe some clarity to some questions that are out there. I want, I want to read a, a testimony um, from someone who was kind enough to uh, allow me to share this. This is a, a man I had the privilege of walking with for a couple years in our counseling ministry. And he wanted to write this as a letter to you guys. Um, this is what he said. Hello, Lighthouse High Schoolers. I'm thankful to God for the opportunity to share a little bit about me through Pastor Tim. There's so much that I wish I could convey to you, but decades are hard to squeeze into minutes, but I will try. Truthfully, I share my story with very few, and it's not something I generally like to discuss. But I think there may be a few of you who bear the same struggles as me, and I'm hoping that you might take good away from my same-sex attractions. My story probably does not sound too different from that of other Christians with same-sex attraction. I do not have great watershed moments to share or surprise endings where my attractions are fixed and I'm happily married. But what I do have to share is the incredible grace shown to me in the gospel through Christ. Let me tell you a story of darkness, lament, suffering, and great mercy. I grew up in a loving Christian family, my parents raising me and my siblings deep in the faith, not just saying it to us, but living it out and making it the center of our home. It was never a question of does God exist or is the gospel real? I have for all intents and purposes been saved my entire life. From an early age, I felt a strangeness of feeling different from other boys in otherness, just not quitting, quite fitting in. I didn't have the same cooties phase that other boys around my age had. My best friend in elementary school was a girl and the same in high school too. Even to this day, I have greater comfort generally interacting with girls rather than guys. I felt a lack of comfort among my male peers and some of that persists to today too. I can't even pinpoint a time, but maybe as early as fifth grade, I started developing a fascination and attraction for boys. I was too young to know exactly what was going on, but I think I knew from a young age that I had same-sex attraction. I also felt though the wrongness of it too, but I had no outlets or mechanisms for healthy coping, so I kept my mouth shut for a long time, keeping mostly to myself, trying to be a good kid following the rules. 
As I aged into adolescence, the emptiness that longed to be filled only grew. I did not feel like I was masculine enough and that I could never be masculine enough, that my deficiencies were too great. I felt uncomfortable when others would attribute any masculine traits to me, feeling like somehow I'd been found out that I really didn't have any right to possess masculinity. I felt like an imposter among other guys, like one misstep and I would be found out. Even though I didn't think I had any rightful claim to masculinity, I wanted it anyway. That emptiness began to manifest in my relationships and interactions with my guy friends. I craved their approval. I wanted physical affection from them, feeling like that somehow communicated that I was accepted and not this other. I knew that God said homosexuality was wrong, and so it was not even a question in my mind that I had to fight. And I fought hard against the desires in my heart as best as I could for a long time. But I slowly gave ground from the weariness of fighting. Lust and idolatry began to occupy more and more of my thoughts and my heart. I wanted to give myself over to the boys I liked and the crushes I had. All the while, I curated an external perception that all was fine. Questions like, who do you like, or what's your type, and the like, gave me great anxiety. So I made up stories on the spot and pretended in church that I was more mature and just wiser not to date in high school. But a quiet battle raged deep within me, unknown to any, just me and the Lord. It wasn't until sophomore year of high school that the tension could no longer remain so. I mustered up the courage to tell my parents and my family. I dreaded so deeply about what would happen, but I knew that things couldn't remain as they were. To this day, I've never seen the expression on my mom's face as I did that night many years ago. A hollowness in her eyes, wondering what she and my dad had done wrong all these years to arrive here. But God showed me great mercy, and my, father, my family gathered around me and supported me in Christ, praying with me and loving me as they always had done. As the years continued, I went and graduated from college. The battlefield quickly began changing. The reasons for why I never dated before began to shrivel quickly as I aged. I started to realize my attractions may never change. I began to come to terms that I may never have kids. I may never marry. I may never have a first kiss. I may never go on a date. And that when people come to me and ask about dating, it's just been easier to lie and say it's because I don't want to, when inside I feel like I'm dying and no one can hear me. So many lost years it has felt that even if I miraculously woke up tomorrow with all my attractions changed, those years would never come back to me. I found myself asking the Lord, why have you been so unfairly hard on me? Almost every day I'm confronted by questions and struggles that most people never think to consider in their entire lifetime. It's hard not to compare with friends and peers who are going on dates, getting engaged, marrying, having children, leading these amazing lives with degrees from amazing schools and subsequent amazing jobs. Meanwhile, I remain single and overwhelmed with difficult circumstances. What about me, God? God, I plead your gospel. I follow you and love you as best I can. That faithfulness has meant very little and cost me much. Why have you been so hard on me? I have been very angry at God. My anger proclaimed to me that God does indeed exist and he's sovereign, but he's not loving. Not in any way that makes material difference to my life at least. I'm angry at you, God. And you cannot even stop long enough to take notice of a single tear. It has been easy to succumb to a pseudo-Christian fatalism that says, I know the secular options do not lead to happiness, but neither does following Christ, so I'll follow him because he is the least horrible option. 
I'm stuck because I know that the Bible is true. And so I can follow down my own path, but God will just smite me back into obedience. He's a cruel master. Being a Christian with same-sex attraction has been a back-breaking burden that has grown with agonies that do not have words or utterances to articulate itself. It has been without respite, characterized by despair and great darkness. The isolation has been cruel and the pain unrelenting. Hopelessness and weeping have been all too familiar. And I can thank God for all of it. I can thank God that he restores the lost years. I can thank God for never leaving my side in the lonely nights weeping to myself. I can thank God for hurting alongside me as the great sufferer himself. I can thank God for being the only one capable of entering into my pain. I can thank God that he redeems my same-sex attraction. I can thank God for all his promises given to me in Christ. I can thank God that he welcomes me back, his prodigal son, with a shout and a feast. I can thank God for grace that not just forgives my sin, but transforms me from the inside out. I can thank God because he is mine and I am his. I can thank God because of the gospel. Only because of Christ can I say this. Life has not gone the way I want or thought, but I can still say this. The fact that God chose to come down as fully man to live a sinless life and then die the death of a sinner on a cross to pay the debt of all my sins against him, that that is why I can say this. Now I pose a question to you, high schoolers. Can you say this? Is this the kind of God that you know? Do you have such a sure hope and foundation that when sins, trials, and suffering shake you down to the core of your being, do you have the knowledge that it is Christ that will keep you? If I could take a moment to address those of you struggling with same-sex attraction and feel the pull of the world and the pull of Christ, I personally know how you feel and where you are at because I've been there myself. However, if I were present to speak with you and to hear everything within your heart, I would not be able to fully understand the depths of your pain and suffering. But Christ can. Of his many names of glory, the great sufferer is one of his. He is the greatest sufferer of all humanity, alone, misunderstood, abandoned, tempted, feeling the pull of the two worlds, yet without sin. And he hurts alongside with you. You are not less than nor loved any less than any other child of God who Jesus himself has died and paid for. Your dark and lonely nights are not lost on the great Savior. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you are not your attractions. You are not your sufferings. You are not your own. You have very real temptations and very real troubles, but you have a more real God. I'd like to leave you with an old hymn whose lyrics I've come to love by Annie J. Flint. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. 
Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for loving us, allowing us to hear the echoes of your love in this brother's life and in his story. And Lord, I pray that our Lighthouse Youth Group, that Kairos would be a place where we experience your love echoing in our relationships, where struggles could be shared and honored, where lives would be taken interest in, where we wouldn't come alongside with judgment, but we would come alongside with humility and interest and a desire to deepen our worship of you. Lord, I, I just thank you for loving us. I thank you that you do not leave us alone to look in, inward and try to figure out who we are and what life is about. But you have given us your word and you have given us your son so that there is a light that, that shatters the darkness, that clarifies the confusion, and that allows us to know how to experience love from you and love from each other that creates life. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.